Well, let's ask God to speak to us tonight through his word. Lord, we do long for you to speak to us tonight. We long to hear your voice. We long, Lord, that as we look at this passage of scripture, as we get into the details of of this chapter, that you would speak to us. Lord, give us ears that are open to hearing from you. Give us lives that are open to being transformed by you. But Lord, let us all leave here knowing that we have heard from you through your word, by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Judges, it's not really covered in Sunday school. You know, we we don't tend to teach the book of Judges to children. And there's lots of good reasons why that is, because it's a pretty dark book. But if you were going to teach Judges chapter to a child, I think you could frame it pretty much like a fairy tale. So follow with me there. You've got it on your handout. Here's what the fairy tale would sound like if we were teaching this to children. Once upon a time, in a land far away, there was a wicked king who had a fierce general with great military might. Life was hard for the people who lived in that land as the general treated them cruelly. But a team of three rescuers arose to defeat the cruel general and the wicked king. The first was a prophetess who sat under a tree. The second, a soldier who won a battle in a storm. Third was a woman with a hammer in her hand. And this really is a great summary of the action that takes place in Judges chapter 4. But what we're going to see tonight is that this ain't no fairy tale. What we're going to see tonight is that this is a true story. And what we're going to see tonight is that there's lots of details in this, that if it was a fairy tale, we certainly would not tell to our children. Let's take a look at the real life situation where where Judges chapter 4 took place in in verses 1 to 3. Let's have a look at the setting. Let's look at what happened here. So look at verses 1 to 3. Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord after he died. And the Lord sold them in the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had nine hundred chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for twenty years. What we're told, first of all, is that the people sinned. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but have you ever seen someone repeatedly make the same mistake over and over again? You see, what's really sad is that you see people do this a couple of times and you feel a bit sorry for them. But I know people who have made the same mistakes over and over again for decades. And their life's been ruined by it. And my guess is that that you might know people like that too. You watch them repeating a habit over and over and over and over again. Well, this is what God's people did when they got into the land. They repeated the same mistake. They committed the same sin over and over and over again. Throughout Judges, you read that refrain over and over and over. Again, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And what was it they did? The same thing. They kept turning from God towards idols. And so what does God do? Well, God does what he also does over and over and over again. He disciplines them. He disciplines them. Like we saw last week, he he brings them into a time of hardship that will eventually cause them to turn to God, back to God, and cry out for help. And the hardship they face, we can read about it here. We see the hardship, don't we? The commander of 
King Jabin's army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagim. And then verse 3, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. There's two reasons we see the trouble here. First of all, this who's really mistreating them, this general who is ruling over them, he has 900 chariots of iron. Made completely of iron? Probably not. They'd be quite hard to pull with a horse. Were these chariots kind of covered in iron in different areas? Maybe. Were these chariots with iron wheels? Possibly. Were these chariots with big bits of iron sticking out of the wheels to mow everyone down in their way? Possibly. We don't know what these iron chariots were. But what we do know is that they were the most advanced military kit available. It was kind of like having tanks. 900 chariots of iron was unheard of. And here what you have is you have God's people and they're being ruled by this general and to enforce his rule, he has 900 chariots of iron just sitting ready to go at any point in time. How desperate is that? They've no way of beating Sisera. They can't lead a rebellion against him. They can't fight him. They're stuck in this position. If you want to imagine them rising up, it would be a bit like uh, an army with kind of swords fighting against an army with tanks. That's what it would be like if they tried to fight against Sisera. They're stuck. They've no chance of rising up. They've no chance of escaping. They've no chance of getting out from under his control. And what's sad here is that not only was Sisera a powerful man with this great military might, he was a cruel man. He was a cruel man. Maybe you know some cruel people. Maybe you've had cruel things done to you. Maybe you've people in your family who've had cruel things done to them. One of the sad things that we see in our world is that whenever someone comes to power, whenever someone comes to, to might, very often they, they take that power and they're cruel with it. Think through history, the, the German concentration camp. You've got the Japanese concentration camps. Men having live experiments done upon them. Awful cruelty. Even today in North Korea, you have the North Korean camps. Absolute power is being used to abuse. And here jail, here, here, here Sisera is doing that. He's, he's abusing the people. He's treating them cruelly. What's he doing? We, we don't really know. But the Canaanite culture was perverse. And whenever we read Judges chapter 5, we see that Sisera was someone, whenever he went to war, would take women and rape them. He's cruel. He's horrible. And he's oppressing the people of God. It's not a good position to be in. They cannot save themselves. They only have one hope of help. And that hope of help is God the God they've turned from. Their only hope is God, the God they've walked away from to follow Baal and Asheroth. But what do they do? Well, they cry out to God. They cry to him for help. Have a look at verse 3. They cried to the Lord for help. That word Lord, it's Yahweh. It's God's personal name. They turn to the God of their forefathers. They turn to the God who should be their God and they cry to him for help. And what does God do? Well, in his grace and in his mercy and in his kindness, 
He does like he always does. He answers it. He answers it. And how does he answer it? He answers it by raising up three rescuers. That's the second part of our fairy tale, isn't it? He does it by raising up three rescuers. The first was a prophetess who sat under a tree. Have a look at verse 4 and you'll meet the first hero, Deborah. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. The first person we meet, the first in the three-person rescue team, this woman called Deborah, and she is outstanding. She's just outstanding. She's got intuition. She's got wisdom. She's got kindness. She's got insight. She's just a brilliant, brilliant lady. She's brave. She's motherly. She's just fantastic. She's strong. She's awesome. She's brilliant. This woman. And her job, well, she's a judge. Now, last time we met, we heard that judges were those with, with swords in their hands. But, but this lady, Deborah, she's an actual judge. People come to her with their problems and their issues, and, and they tell her what it is, and, and she judges them. She's some sort of ruler. She's in the political game, if you like. She's introduced as a judge, but there's also two also interesting things that Deborah's introduced as. And the first of them is she's a prophetess. You see that in verse 4. Now, Deborah, we're told, was a prophetess. What is a prophetess? Well, it's the same as a prophet. It's the female form of a prophet. And a prophet is someone who delivers God's message to God's people. Now, Deborah, she didn't go around like Isaiah or Jeremiah walking around Israel the message. No, Deborah sat under the palm tree and people came to her. And when they came to her, if she had a word from the Lord, she'd tell them what God had said. She's a prophetess, a prophet. She spoke God's word to God's people. Does that mean that women can be prophetesses? In the Bible, it seems, there's a number of them. A number of them. It's interesting, isn't it? We're not going to get into that tonight, but it's just interesting. But it's really interesting, too, that she's not just described as a prophetess. She's also described as the wife of someone. She's described as a wife. Do you see that? Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. What a name, Lapidoth. I don't know anyone called Lapidoth. Do you? And what's really interesting is if you read the rest of the Bible, you'll find no one else called Lapidoth either. It's a strange name. Here's this character who just appears here in Judges and is never seen again. But you know something? This week, as I've kind of thought about Deborah, I have grown to really, really admire Lapidoth. Huh? I have. And why I've come to admire Lapidoth is because he is married to Deborah who's brilliant. She's brilliant. She's bright. She's been called by God to do something extraordinary. She's caring. She's supportive. She's just this wonderful woman. And why I admire Lapidoth is because he supports her in her brilliance. He supports her in what God's called her to do. He supports her in her work as a judge. He lets her shine and he lets her sparkle in this dark world that's dominated 
by men. You see, what I don't think we get is that at this time and in this culture, men really did wear the trousers. Ironically, they didn't actually wear trousers. It looked more like a dress. It was a robe. But you get the idea. In this culture, men really were the boss. You would pay a dowry for your wife. In a sense, you owned her. In a sense, you had complete authority over her. You could say where she went and where she didn't go. You could say what she did and what she didn't do. In this context, to be a husband was really to be the boss of a piece of property. Now, we don't like the sound of that, but that is what the reality of the situation was. And so what does that mean about Lapidoth? It means that he stayed with his blessing. You've been called to judge Israel. You've been called to be a Love, go and do it. Do it. God's called you to speak his word to, to, to the people of God. Go for it. Who am I to stand in the way of God? He's brilliant. And the reason he's brilliant is because his wife is more gifted and talented and she shines so much brighter than him. But instead of pouring water on her fire, he he gets the bellows out and he fans the flames and he encourages her to go and, and to be everything that God has called her to be. I think Lapidoth is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I just want to say that in today's society, sometimes I think as men, especially in a marriage, we can feel like we need to be the shining star. I think marriages can sometimes feel that, that, that they have to be the one who's seen as the, the great spiritual one or, or the strong one or the brave one. But the reality is that sometimes God may have actually designed our wives to be more spiritual and braver and stronger I'm better at many things than we are. And then what I want to say to those of you who are married is you see if your wife is shining, don't pour a bucket of water on her. Get the bellows out. Flame and encourage her. Encourage her in all she's doing. Encourage her in all she is. Encourage her tonight. Be a lappy dog. Be a lappy dog. And I know that some of you here tonight are young. Some of you are not so young. I know some of you here tonight are single and maybe hoping to be married one day. And what I want to say to you here tonight is that if you're a single lady here tonight, look for a lappy dog. Find a lappy dog. Don't be with someone who's going to get a bucket of water and throw it over you and and put your sparkle out and your shine out. If God has called you to do something, if he's called you to be a certain way, if he's gifted you and given you skills and abilities and talents, find a lapidoth. Find someone who's going to encourage you and encourage you to shine even brighter than him. Find a lapidoth. So Deborah, she's a prophetess. She's a wife and she's got a lapidoth. And she's judging Israel and she's speaking on God's behalf. And and she's a key person in how God rescues Israel from Sisera. Because what we're told is that in verse 6, she's got a message from God about how he's going to rescue the people. So verse 6, we see what she does. 
Deborah, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not God, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go and gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and from the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Now, whenever I read this, I'm not quite sure what Deborah's doing. And and it's one of two things. The first thing she might be doing is kind of telling Barak off. She might be giving him a good telling off because, you see, it's a question, has God not told you to do this? Hey, Barak, come here. Has God not told you to go and get your 10,000 men and get down to Mount Tabor? Has he not told you to go and do that? Well, go and get on with it. She might be telling him off. And it's interesting because in in chapter 5, she's described as the mother of Israel to do. It's like she's telling her son off. Or, or maybe she's just making known to Barak what But no matter what, Barak now knows his part in Israel. Barak to his area. He's to get 10,000 of his men. Obviously, Barak was a military man or a soldier or a great leader. He's to get 10,000 of his men. He's to march them down to Mount Tabor. Then when they get there, God's going to draw Sisera out and he's to go down to the river Kishon. And then what does God say? He says, Barak, I'm going to deliver them into, they're going to be delivered into my hand. Barak, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out into battle and I want you to know that I will deal with Sisera and I will deal with the 900 chariots. I am going to wipe them out, Barak. But I need you to go down there and I need you to draw them out. God gives Barak the game plan. The very detailed game plan of how Sisera is going to be defeated. But Barak doesn't want to play. Barak doesn't want to. Barak doesn't want to take 1,000 men and go down to the Kishon River against 900 tanks. See, Barak knows that it would be impossible to defeat these ones. So what does he do? He gives an ultimatum. Because he wants assurance. He wants reassurance that this really is. He wants reassurance that God will be with him. And so what does he do? If you have a look at verse 8, he turns to Deborah, and he says to her, if you will go with me, I will go. Not go with me, I will not go. Do you see the condition? Okay, Deborah, I hear what God's saying here but I'm only going if you come with me. He needs that reassurance. He needs Deborah to go with him to reassure him that God is with him. He needs that reassurance. And so he says to Deborah, listen, will you go with me? If you go, I'll go. But if you don't, I'm not going there. He needs that reassurance. And again, what I love about Deborah is how she responds. She doesn't give him a slap. Say, have faith in God, will you? She doesn't give him a slap on the other cheek and say, man up, will you? You know, how does she respond? She says, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. Again, just this wonderful way about her. She recognizes that Barak needs this reassurance. She recognizes that Barak needs her to go with him. And so she says, okay, Barak, if that's what it's going to take, if that's going to reassure you, if that's going to 
to help you to get the job done, I'll go with you, Barak. And again, it's that mother of Israel picture, isn't it? It's like the mom who goes to the child's first party with the child just to reassure them, just to put them at ease. Deborah, the, the mother of Israel, she, she goes with Barak. And I think there's something in this we need to grasp in here tonight. There's times in our lives when we all need the reassurance of other people. There's times in our lives when we're facing things that are so difficult, facing things that are, that are so hard, facing things that we're afraid of, that what we really need is someone to go with. What we need is someone to hold our hand. And what I want to say to you tonight is that that does not make you weak. That, that does not make you weak to need someone to go with you and hold your hand difficult things, it's human. It's with God, isn't it? The first man he creates, and what does he say? It's not good for him to be alone. And so he creates someone to be with him. And then we've got the church, don't we? We're saved as individuals, but we're not saved alone. We're saved into a family. God is all about togetherness. He's all about community. He doesn't call us to do things on our own. He calls us to walk the path of life with others. And I just want to say to you tonight, if you're going through difficult times, if you're facing an uphill battle, if you're facing an impossible battle, and you're doing it on your own, you don't have to be. You don't have to be. You can be like Barak. And you can turn to one and say, will you go with me in this? Will you walk with me in this journey? And just to reiterate, it doesn't make you weak. It makes you human. Or maybe you're here tonight and you know somebody who's facing that battle. You know who's on that journey. You know someone who's in need. And what I want to say to you is if you know someone is in that position, go to them. Hey, listen, let me walk with you in this. Let me help you here. Let me hold your hand as you go and deal with this. So anyway, Barak and Deborah, they go down to Mount Tabor. Uh, and just as it, God had said, the Torah comes out. And then if you have a look at verse 15, you see what happened. And the Lord rose and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. What? How'd that happen? 900 chariots defeated. How'd that happen? Well, you find out in chapter 5. Chapter 5, it says this, the torrent of the Kishon swept them away. Do you remember our fairy tale? It's about a man who won a battle in a storm. Well, what it seems is that God sent a rainstorm. And like so many rivers in Israel, whenever the rain comes, it's so used to being a dry place. When the rain comes, the river bursts its bank. And it takes away everything in its past. Just, just in January there last year, you can read about the Kishon River flooding and wiping things out. And God does that. He delivers Barak into the hand, or he delivers the army into the hand. The, 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 the chariots are swept away. The enemy's been defeated. The battle is over. The victory is won. Well, actually, not quite. Because someone got away. Who got away? That awful, cruel man, Sisera. 
Have a look at verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Herber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabe and the king of Hazor and the house of Herber the Kenite. Now, there's a lot of detail in that. Basically, the Kenites were this nomadic tribe. They used to just pitch their tent wherever they wanted. Traditionally, they lived near the Israelites and they were good friends with them. But this one family, we're told earlier on, had decided to move their tent. They moved away from the Israelites. They were friends with them, but they moved away. Why did they move away? We don't know, but God used it. Because as Sisera is running away, he comes across this tent. And it's the tent of Herber the Kenite. And, and he thinks, I found an ally here. And so this lady jails, she says to him, yes, Sisera, come on in. You have wee rest there, son. I know you're messing up. Just you lay your head down there. You want a wee drink? Sure, I'll give you a wee milk before your bed there. <laughs> he, he asks for water, but she oh. And he lays it down and she tucks him in. And all seems lovely. But it seems that Jael knows who this man is. And it seems that she knows that he's an enemy of God. She knows that he's an enemy of God's people. And it seems that she knows that he's cruel and horrible and evil. And so what does she do? Well, as he sleeps... She takes a tent peg. Women were the ones who put up the tents. They knew all about tent making. They, they were the ones who looked after the tents. She took the, the tent peg and the mallet and she drove it into his temple until it was sticking out of the ground. Now we read that and we're a little bit horrified as people who live in today's world. But we're not meant to be horrified. What we're meant to be is amazed that God defeated this enemy. What we're meant to be is glad that this evil was stopped. You see, because here what you have is you have Jael hammering a tent peg into the head of, of this man Sisera. But this is actually a thing that we've already read in Genesis. Do you remember Genesis chapter 3? And the serpent who deceived Eve. And do you remember the promise made to the serpent? I will raise up a rescuer and he will crush your head. And you will crush your heel. This is the picture of what the Lord Jesus is going to do to that great enemy. He is going to drive a stake through his head. He is going to kill him totally and utterly and completely. He's going to destroy the evil one one day in totality. And how is he going to do it? Well, he started doing it through his cross. Do you see the picture of the cross in it? There's the tent peg being hammered in to the ground. Can you see Jesus' hand being hammered into the cross? Can you see his feet being hammered into the cross? See, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was the ultimate defeat of evil, the ultimate defeat of Satan, the ultimate defeat of God's enemy. This is not a fairy tale. Fairy tales do not have this sort of detail in them. 
And the other reason it's not a fairy tale is because it doesn't have a happy ending. Because do you know what we read at the beginning of chapter 6? After all this has happened, the same mistake again. And again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Folks, we make that same mistake again, don't we? But we have one who was pierced for our transgressions, one who was crushed for our iniquities, the Lord Jesus Christ. And though we fail him every day, every day he gives us his grace. Why? Because we're those who've cried out. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that because we've called on his name, our sin has been forgiven. Our past sin, our present failures, and even our future mistakes have all been nailed to the cross of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that whenever we cried out to you, we received your forgiveness. And that every day we receive it again, over and over even with our constant mistakes and our constant sin and our constant turning away from you. Lord, we thank you for this part of the Bible tonight. Just it's not an easy part, we thank you for the things you said to us through it. And Lord, we pray that just whatever way you've spoken to us, whatever you've said to us, however you've impacted our hearts and minds tonight, that you'd help us not to resist what you say, but to really take it on board and to live differently tomorrow morning in light of it. Lord, thank you that your word is always doing a work in us. And may this word continue to work in us tonight and in the coming weeks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.